Welcome to Roadcase, the podcast that explores the live music experience. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Josh Rosenberg, and I'll be taking you on a journey through in-depth interviews with performers and key people in the industry to explore the magic of live music, how it can be totally transformative for both fans and performers, and we'll look at how they take it all out on the road. It's going to be a great ride, so here we go. Okay, everyone, welcome back to Roadcase. Uh, This is episode 43, the first episode of season two. I'm so psyched to be here myself, and I'm really happy to have you all along for this ride. Thank you so much for your support of Roadcase. It really means a lot, and I'm so glad that you're here for this special episode uh, with Bob Boylan of Tiny Desk. I'm so psyched to have been able to uh, sit down, interview Bob, uh, and learn about Tiny Desk. Um, In the meantime, I want to encourage everybody to uh, continue to support Roadcase, and you can do that by uh, following us on social media. We're at Roadcase Pod, and that's, of course, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, We also have a YouTube channel, Roadcase Podcast. And if you'd like, please do check in on in email format. Um, I'm at info at roadcasepod.com. You can send your questions, uh, comments, or just say hi. I promise I will get back to you. I appreciate everyone's support and thanks for being here. Uh, Again, this is the first episode of a new season. We got a ton of new guests and uh, great episodes. I can't wait to share them with you uh, from artists to uh, people in the industry, tour managers, roadies, promoters, um, just a, a plethora of interviews. And um, thanks again for your support and for being here. Um, <clears throat> especially for this episode, I've got Bob Boylan from NPR's Tiny Desk. Bob started All Songs Considered, which is an online NPR music show and now hosts it full time. Um, in 2008, he began hosting concerts at his desk, and it's called Tiny Desk Concerts, and has become a global and online phenomenon featuring emerging and well-known artists in a stripped-down, kind of naked format. Uh, and if you haven't seen any of these, uh, they are extraordinary, um, and I highly uh, urge you to go check out some Tiny Desk episodes and concerts they are phenomenal and bob is the one that's responsible for bringing that to everybody in this amazing stripped down format i can't say enough about it and i'm so excited to have bob here he's a wonderful human really enjoyed talking with him and learning more about his background and uh tiny desk and in 2016 he wrote a book your song changed my life where uh that features uh each chapter of 35 different artists who name a song that changed their life forever i love that concept and uh, it really resonated with me and we'll talk about that too so thanks for being here for this inaugural episode of what's going to be an amazing season two on Roadcase. I want to thank Bob again for taking the time to be here uh, with me and uh, allowing me to interview him about Tiny Desk. Thanks again to everyone for joining me. And here we go. Okay. Hi, Bob. So happy to have you here. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Josh. Those photos in the background there, those album covers? Uh, on the left there. Those are albums, album and those are show couple show posters. Uh-huh. One from a Courtney Barnett, Kurt Vile show. I like it. It's got, I like them, but also it's got Thalia Hall on there, so a uh, popular Chicago venue. The picture's not clear, so I can't pick out the album covers. But oh, damn! Uh, it's <laughs> Sleep Well, Beast National, Trout Mask Replica. Oh, Trout Mask Re- Replica! I totally recognize Captain B for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah and uh, a couple of my morning jacket ones, and then a Wood Brothers. Nice. Uh, one drop of truth over there. I didn't have a tiny desk unit album to throw up there. Sorry. 
<laughs> I might have an extra. Or danger painters. Um, so thanks for being here, Bob. You've done so many in, um, amazing things. I, we were talking about your book that came out a couple of years ago. Your song changed my life. And um, I can super identify, as I'm sure so many people do, about songs changing people's lives. And um, you seem to have tailored your life around the love of music, the love of songs. I wanted to just kind of jump right into Tiny Desk. And um, I've always wondered what was the spark that began that? Because I love Tiny Desk because it's stripped down. I mean, it's it's not a not a not 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 secret sauce anymore that bands come there and do and and they're naked basically uh almost <laughs> and uncomfortable yeah right <laughs> nakeder than they are uh with uh massive amplification in large halls but what was the spark that started that what was the germination of the idea of having kind of a stripped down uh type of show a few things happened. One is that, A, when we did our first one, we didn't know we'd do a second one. So it wasn't mm -hmm. like, let's start a series where we do stripped down art. It wasn't anything like that. Uh, I had gone to, along with a couple of people from NPR, uh, to see uh, to South by Southwest in 2008. Uh, Stephen Thompson was one of the people at NPR Music that we were at the same show together to see a singer named Laura Gibson. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Josh, if you ever go to South by or anybody out there goes to South by Southwest, but um, as much as I love it, it's sort of an insane place to see shows because, you know, sometimes there's three shows happening within like two buildings of one another and they all yeah. blend together or, or sometimes it's a beauty shop or a, <laughs> I, I, I'm just going to make it up, but a car wash. I mean, it just could be anything right. could be a music venue. Anyway, this was. South by Southwest also happens in March during during uh, March Madness, and uh, and people were at a bar watching a basketball game and cheering along happily while Laura Gibson, this very quiet, quiet, beautiful singer from Portland, was up on stage trying to sing her heart out, and no one could hear her. And we went up to her afterward, and Stephen Thompson said, "You ought to just come play a concert in our office." Mm -hmm. For me, that was a spark because. Uh, a couple of things. One is I was a video producer before I was in radio, and I was also in a, do some audio engineering. So that like fit my brain real well. And also, I mm. for eighteen years I produced more produced uh, music pieces for all things considered. Because right. it was a uh, I used to direct that show, but I also produced music pieces. Mm -hmm. And we'd bring in artists, and they'd stick on headphones in a studio, and they tried. Basically, they were trying to reproduce their record. And I just wanted something different. Yeah. Um, and so when Laura did this thing, it was like, this is different. I like this. Laura's yeah. in the daytime in my office and the lights are on and the intern's two feet from her. And and I just got a single microphone and two cameras. And this is, this is great. And the reaction that came back from people watching it. Was mm -hmm. the was the thing that made us do number two, you know, and the, the, meaning I, that made us do the wow, <laughs> that made us do the second, do the second concert. One. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, right. Not the first time we've talked about do number two because, like, you know, we talked to a lot of tour managers about goings on in the tour bus, and that's a definite no no. <laughs> we'll leave that one aside yeah. so anyway uh so it was just thrilling to both the people who watched it and more more so than i expected and and then to uh me and so we did how long did it take one. to get to the second one uh it was vic chestnut and it was not but maybe well i'd have to look for sure but i'm going to guess within a month but mm -hmm. it may have been and what year months. was that so that was 2008. 2000, so April 2008 was Laura. Right. Uh, and and uh, we could look it up, but, but Vic was a, a month or so later. Right. And it really, I mean, what sticks in my mind about your background is your emphasis on songs. We, I talked about that, about, that, about the book. Um, and the songs really, you can't hide from the beauty and the um, just the essence of the song on Tiny Desk, right? I mean, that seems to be kind of what what re what people really come away with is the beauty of the song. Would you agree with that? 
Yeah, but I also think it's the reinterpretation of that song, whatever that is, for someone who knows the artist to hear an artist try to reshape their tune. I don't know if you know this, Josh, but but when an, uh, whoever it is comes into our office behind my desk, not a set, it's my desk, mm-hmm. uh, and sings, they're not allowed to amplify their voice into the room. And that may, changes every single other thing because now the band can't play at a volume they are used to. They're right. not, they don't have monitors in their ears or, or on the floor usually. Uh, they have to play as quiet or loud as they have to play. They, they're doing real time mixing in by themselves, you know? Yeah. So they're listening more carefully. And I think that's, that's to me more than anything what, what grabs the, the, end user you know our listener yeah uh, is the um, is the that bands have to think about it on the fly what they're doing create you sort of understand each individual's role in that song and how what they add uh by either playing loudly or or by just kind of being there right it's yeah, uh, it's fascinating and and look uh i've been a musician for a long time uh i been around a lot of musicians and artists and the main thing i've learned is challenge an artist and you'll get something good and if you make it easy for them so they do the same thing they always do it's going to be the same thing they always do and uh and you don't get anything special but artists like to be challenged and they like to sweat it a little bit they like to they i mean not readily admit that but in the end like if one day you'll come and watch one, mm-hmm. you'll see the trajectory. It's it's pretty predictable. Nervous is all hell, um, and and unsure and kind of icky feeling uh, because none of their uh, trappings are there. There's no stage lighting. There's no reverb on their voice. You know, right. uh, but when it's over and they've done this thing, joy, thrill. I mean, they really, people truly love that moment. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's a beautiful testament to the power of live music. And that's what, that's what I talk about on on this show is just, is, is um, the power of that. But even separate from having huge crowds you know, you're, I don't know how many people, you've never turned the, the from what, every, anyone I've ever seen, I don't know how many people are just sitting there watching. <laughs> so, uh, actually, you can look at a couple. We, we'll throw the crowd now again. There's a Wilco one, um, well, actually two Wilco ones, one mm-hmm. where we ask people to bring their kids on a Saturday morning. Oh, that's cute. And, uh-huh. uh, and so you could see that. But but we did a Wilco, like a 360 concert, and oh, so you could see the out. audience a little more. So, basically... Uh, it's employees of NPR and their friends. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, for the average concert, you know, 100, 150 people could be in the office. For someone, you know, when John Legend shows up, everybody's a friend of everybody. And we've squeezed probably 300 people wow. in that office. And uh, that, it's a, that's a lot of people. Yeah. And this is a silly question, but that is your desk ordinarily? That is my desk. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and when the bands come in, I have to pick my computer up, move it somewhere else, and work while they're, you know, because that's not the only thing I do. So I'm working at somebody else's desk or sitting at a table somewhere in the in the office as they set up and get the gear going and sound checking with my ear on what's going on because I I'm also the producer oftentimes of yeah of many of these. We have other people who produce them, meaning they bring the bands in and so forth. But I'm the I'm the overseer. <laughs> And yeah, yeah, for sure. And from a logistical standpoint for that first ep, for the first performance that you had, um, I mean, was it your, your idea to bring Laura Gibson in, but, um, was it kind of, you were given the green light? It was all about, you just said like, we're going to do this at my desk. And and like, what, what, what kind of, Josh. Josh, Josh, I didn't ask. <laughs> there, okay. there was no right, ask. We'll get to the we, bottom just, of that too. We just, we just did it. All of, all of a sudden, she's just playing there, and you're recording it, and yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I had, um, I asked somebody from audio engineering to come up and just triple check me because I didn't want to mess things up. Yeah. Uh, we got a couple of video cameras. I edited the piece together. Um, 
but uh, yeah, I, I learned to just do stuff and ask later. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. No, what's that old? What's that saying? Um, the like, yeah, ask permission, do something first, and then ask permission later. I don't, I don't yeah. know. There's, yeah, anyway, I'm not sure. I, I, yeah. yeah, the same concept. Um, but you grew up in New York. Uh, you loved, I, I you, you loved the Beatles, uh, and you're a sports fan. So past tense on the sports fan thing. You were a sports fan. Have not been a sports fan since 1969. <laughs> since the Mets lost. Since well, I was a Yankee fan. So uh, should uh, we hang up now? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm good. I, I don't have really much skin no, in the game other than that. I, I, I lived in New York when the Yankees in, in like the, yeah. in the nineties. Uh, when the Yankees had that, those great teams, but yeah, I'm a much older human than you. And, and, uh, so I lived through the Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris era. Oh, there you go. There you go. Finally, I've got someone on the show that's older than me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's nice. It's nice. (laughs) For one of us. Yes. (laughs) I mean, you're, yeah, right. I mean, you're old enough to, uh, to remember the Beatles coming to, to New York for the first time. And, um, you know, your experience with music was sort of, was was from what I understand was based on uh, the love of Beatles, love of songs, and one of the first things that struck me as well was in your book, uh, the first chapter was Jimmy Page, and that I love, I I just loved that because <laughs> I was a huge Zeppelin fan as a kid, and. Um, Tiny Desk represents such a plethora of artists new artists, traditional artists, older artists, everything. Um, but to start out with Led Zeppelin, um, who's this, you know, obviously classic rock, um, it really represented to me the notion that um, classic rockers can also be interested in modern music. As simple as that sounds, uh-huh, there's uh-huh. so much today about classic rockers, guys are like, our age, my age, even younger, obviously, because it's coming up. Um, but so many people can get steeped in that in one particular genre. And I think what my major takeaway was that, you know, you, obviously you had to you had to choose an order of chapters here. And why did you put Jimmy Page first? <laughs> Let me just ask. Um, there's so much in what you just said that I want to address. One is, yeah. Uh, the, well, the reason I picked the, the simple answer to Jimmy Page was is that. The story of Jimmy Page and starting to play music is this happy accident of his family buying a house, and in that house, in a closet in that house, is a guitar. Now, Jimmy Page is young, 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 and that didn't matter, and that guitar sat in that closet. And one Mm -hmm. day, he's at school, and he sees some kid playing a guitar, and he realizes he has one in his closet, uh, and he was going to... learn uh this song from this kid at school yeah um and i find that sort of happy accident that happened to people how they come upon a song or whatever it is that changes the course of their life because of this thing that is just like you can work your butt off to be something and then something comes along and just throws you in another direction. Right. And I love that about life, and I love that about Jimmy Page's story. So that's why I put that at the top of the book. And you'll see that sort of repeat itself multiple times throughout the book, uh, how people, the happenstance of, you know, Connor Ober sitting in the backseat of a car and hearing a song that randomly comes on the radio and asks his mom to, you know, can we just sit and I want to hear it? Whatever. Right, and I love right. that about it. So, and I just want to address one thing about quote-unquote classic rock. Mm. When I listened to that music, that was not classic rock. That was insanely new, vibrant music. Absolutely. And I, and I, and I because some radio format makes money at it and turned it into something that was comfortable for a certain age bunch of people – should not be, should not this, and I'm not saying you were being dismissive of it, but oh, oftentimes not. you hear that term classic rock and it's not a favorable term or it's like, oh, that thing in the past. That at the moment in time was vibrant and unlike anything else. And I truly, truly loved it. And it was a pathway to all of my next musics. 
You mm. know, if, if, if that didn't exist, there are many things in life that I would not musically have liked. So it's a thread. Yes, yeah, some people, and for many reasons, one of them is that radio often sucks. Mm. Uh, yeah. People get stuck in their comfort zone. Or, you know, you have a family, you, life goes on, you can't get out to shows, you, you lose the thread. One of the reasons I started All Songs Considered in the year 2000 mm -hmm. as an online music show was because radio was so, so awful, at least where I lived and in most parts of the country. You know, I'd play music between news stories on All Things Considered as its director, and I'd get letters by artists nobody knew, and right. I'd get letters all the time, hey, what is that? What is this? What is that? You know, and these were a lot of times just musicians at home burning their CDs and sending them to me with handwritten, you know, Sharpie pens. And I realized that that there are many people in life who didn't want to lose that thread of music that they loved, but didn't know how to find it anymore. And in, now that's not hard, but in the year 2000, when radio was just so, so awful, unless you were fortunate to have a... a station in your area and not many were mm -hmm. um that was my s idea or solution was just like hey no there is great music out there you're just not there's you just don't have the opportunity to hear it yeah i totally agree with that and um i'm glad that you picked up on that i, I wasn't using classic rock yeah. as a um pejorative yeah no, I didn't, yeah I not didn't at all you were, not but, at all uh, no no i <laughs> yeah <laughs> the notion makes you laugh. I mean, it's like, no, I yeah. love it. I love yeah. it. I mean, I don't listen to it as much as I once did, but I grew up on it when it was, and you remember, I mean, it was on, that was what it was. That was on the radio. That's what I listened to when I'm growing up. I worked um, in record stores when that stuff, then those records were coming out, man. Yeah. And, and you worked yeah. at a record store when you were, when you were, uh, it was one of your first jobs. Right. And I, and I, yeah. and um, you mentioned in in the book that records were three ninety nine, and I wrote that down because yeah, I remember that was the price. Yeah, it was the, the Music Plus on the corner that I used to go to it was like three ninety nine. Wow. I just scraped yeah. that together. Um, but yeah, yeah, the um, the also you know the coincidental fatalism of like finding a particular item or s th those stories are amazing. Um, I um, I'm talking to uh. John Russell of uh, The Head and the Heart, uh, tomorrow, as a matter of fact. Um, and you probably know or may have heard the story of this uh, this lost cell phone that some band member, I'm going to massacre this story, but uh, I'll get it more tomorrow. But this a band member lost a cell phone and then it was picked up and he was called back by a number and his cell phone had ended up at the the offices of Sub Pop Records in Seattle. <laughs> I mean, See? not as not yeah. as I mean, the, not as romantic as finding a guitar in your closet and realizing that that well, was no, kind of. But, but the other part about that, and and for anybody who's still young out there, um, is to like don't ignore that. Like, yeah, seize yeah. an opportunity. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I, uh, that I, I, I picked up that you said in the book also was, um, I believe in, uh, I believe that in life, certain people see things in you that you don't see in yourselves. Is that kind of along the same lines for you? Um, I certainly didn't feel capable when I was young to see things in myself or dream about things that I could make happen. I, I just didn't see that. And, and, uh, having raised a kid um, now, I, I mean, for what it and what it's worth, you know, keeping your mind open to the possibilities of life and looking for opportunities and looking for what people observe in you that you might not know or think about is, I think, really important because people you don't see yourself the way other people do, and. Um, and there's valuable information that people gather about you and think about and see in each and of, of us and listen to that as a as a person and and also as a as the observer pass along that information when it's relevant anyway 
Yeah, well, maybe not not enough people do that. But where what was a good example of that in your own life where someone believed in you and maybe you didn't really believe in yourself? Oh dear, when when I okay, it was brave for me, and I'll say this that I I had a job in TV and stuff you know, as a video editor and stuff, and mm-hmm. I really I I don't like TV very much, and and much less even now than I did then. But I didn't want to spend my life doing video in that way and and uh npr had done a story on my music in 1983 i'd done a piece uh called whiz bang history of sound that imagined the history of sound from the beginning of time to the end of time in 20 minutes and, and we put that in as a sound and slide installation in the smithsonian but anyways npr wow. did a story on me that was 83 mm-hmm. in 1988 I'm, I'm working making music and stuff but may, but really not doing much and uh and I really wanted to be in radio. I did not want to be in TV. And I quit my TV job uh, and then went to NPR to find the person who did the story on my music five years previous and uh, and wound up getting a job or at least a couple of weeks of job at NPR and started coming in and showing up all the time and they'd hire me for a week or two weeks or three weeks. And one day, I don't know, maybe eight months into this, doing this, um, Marika Partridge, who was the uh, director of All Things Considered in 1989, this would have been, um, said to me, hey, I'm going to go to New York to help uh, this fellow John Hockenberry work on this new show in New York, and we want to know, how would you like to direct the show? And I was like, you have to be kidding me. <laughs> that is like... <laughs> I am not Mr. Organized. Like, that is not me. <laughs> but she saw that in me. Yeah. She said, oh, you can do that. The math stuff, all that stuff, that you can get that. What you can't teach, she said, is, and what was really important to being a director of all things considered in those days, was segueing music out of news stories to get us to other news stories or to get us to a break or whatever and picking that appropriate music that fit the tone or transitioned in tone from one news story to the next that was something you couldn't teach at least it's hard to teach yeah but what you could teach is the math the like the 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 show, the, the segment ends at 28 and 59 sec, 28 minutes and 59 seconds after the hour, and you have to, you know, back time everything to get there, and you have a, here's a timing calculator to do that. You mm-hmm. can learn that stuff. Mm-hmm. So she saw in me the ability for me to do that, as did Ellen Weiss, my boss at the time. Mm-hmm. And I thought they were crazy. And at first I said, no way, you got to be kidding. That is not me. But I listened. Why did they ask me to do this? These are smart people. These are people who, for years, I've been listening to on the radio and admiring their work, and they're telling me I could do this. Why would I say no? Right. And I went and said yes, and uh, altered the, the entire course of my uh, fortunate life. Yeah, and um, so basically allowing to be able, just taking that in from someone and believe believing that others can believe in you. I mean, that's kind of a yeah. personal struggle that everyone can have. I mean, <laughs> believing in oneself enough to get the positive signals. Again, it's that, um, I guess it's that um, that kind of cosmic coincidence sometimes, right? You're in the right place at the right time, but you're also with the right people. Um, I keep thinking of the same theme of just Paige having the guitar in the closet. Yeah, crazy. Right? Yep. I mean, I struggle with that, um, believing in oneself. and um, We all do. Yeah. Think, to some extent. Um, did you consider saying no to it? I did say no. At the, at the, at the, when they first said, I said, you got you to be crazy. Well, That's you got to be kidding is different than flat out no. Well, I mean, I can't remember if I actually said no and the next day said yes or – if it, I just said that's that's crazy. I can't do that. Or, or and conversation for fifteen minutes turned my. I don't remember the specifics. I do remember my gut reaction was like that. That is not me. I cannot do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was an opportunity for you to. Um, I mean, you wanted to be in radio. Obviously, NPR is kind of the pinnacle of that. Um, and you had an opportunity to work with music there. Um, how important was it that one particular aspect of that show was doing the uh, doing the musical transitions and the segues? Uh, 
I mean, it was the one thing in life I could say that I had the ability to do. I was a college <laughs> was dropout and, and uh, just could not find my place in life. I mean, I was making music uh, in a tiny desk unit in 79 through 81. Uh-huh. Uh, I was making music with this theater company, composing uh, from about 83 to about 86, 87. Uh-huh. Um, did a few art pieces and so forth in 87, 88. Uh, none of it brought me any money at all. I mean, you're not going to live on any of that. Right. Um, so I had to figure out, okay, this is cool. I like doing that stuff, but what do I do to make money? And I didn't want to, I mean, maybe it's true of most people. You don't want a job that just makes money. I mean, I mean, well, for some, that's good. Some and then they get their vacation shit, for four it's, weeks it's a, and take a, their vacation and whatever. Yeah. It's amazing. But, I, but I, that wasn't like, I, my father was a salesman and, uh, I just, I think I came from, I'm in a generation and now we just take it for granted, but my parents' generation was probably more raised to, uh, your goal in life is to put a roof over the head of your children and have, and give them food for the most part. And I'm not being dismissive here because I understand that that's a struggle for some, but for the most part, uh, that's a given for a good chunk of the American population, that you will have that roof and you will have that food. Um, mm. You know, for, again, I'm not being dismissive, but f- for a huge population, that is a truism. And certainly in the middle class, lower middle, middle, and upper middle class of people that I was around in Queens, New York, and so forth, and then later in Maryland, uh, right. that was true. So... My generation, the next generation, was like, okay, yeah, no, food's a given. Um, even though I had to sell my records to get that food when I was a musician, um, uh, and a roof over my head uh, was kind of a given. Um, so, what's the thing that that is the next step? And so, my parents, in the way I look at it, afforded me the opportunity to think a little bit more about myself and what I can bring and make of myself that I can then bring to the, to the world, you know, like, like my first thing I wanted to be when I got out of high school was a psychology major. Cause I just wanted to help people. Like, yeah. how could I help people? How could I give? Um, and, uh, anyway, but I also didn't want to do something I didn't like. Right. So. Um, well, clearly you I care about this stuff. I'm not sure <laughs> that, sorry. No, I mean no. I mean, I I just don't know. I'm happy to have this conversation. It's refreshing, but but um, I do. You I tell care me. about. It. Did you say? Did you ask me if I care about this stuff? No, I no. I, I I that big big question. Hey, everybody out there, do you care? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's too late now because we're down the rabbit hole on this, and it's okay, a great right, to- good, it's a great good. topic because really, Bob. I mean, my big picture takeaway was that, um, and. I love this. This is why I talk to performers and artists and those involved in music um, because I meet so many people and I get to talk to so many people that are working in what they're passionate about. And when you're bringing music to fans, you're creating music. There's the creative side and then there's a performance aspect to it as well. And you're bringing this, um, this part of yourself, not only presenting it to others and really kind of bearing yourself and your soul uh, to a large extent, but also creating a scenario of performance that is cathartic for those that are fans and that are in the same room Mm -hmm. um, when you're doing that in a live setting. Um, But I get to talk to people that are in their passion, that are doing what they really love and um, I got that a lot from what I know about you, and I'm happy to hear you talk about that because, <laughs> good, and good, even good. even when you're you talk about directing and all things considered, um, that kernel of what you loved and what you grew up and what you had a passion about was music, and and that was there, and you pursued that, and you were able to uh, be in a job where you were doing something that you loved, even if it was a small part of it. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of what it's all about, right? Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's, I, I feel so fortunate always. I, I don't take it for granted. Yeah. 
Um, let's go back to new music and bringing new music to people. So we got off, we were talking about classic rock and you smacked me down a little bit for even using that term. <laughs> I just want to enlighten those who, who are 20 or 30 or even now at 40 yeah. who've heard that term their whole life and dad rock or whatever and know that for many it's not this thing that's a thing of the past. It is a, it is. It's a road. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> I was going yeah. down the road again. Um, well, I mean, a lot of bands that I see, um, Tedeschi Trucks, for example, um, and a lot of the alt-rock bands that I see are taking up classic rock covers, and people are absolutely loving it. They eat it up, you know? Huh. And I love seeing... Um, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, those that are younger than me loving that music. And uh, I love younger bands that are bringing that to the table because then it's like, yeah, you listen to it too. And then I have a 16-year-old who's a rocker and loves it as well and brings me, he's like, dad, dad, listen to this. And it's like, Back in Black by ACDC. I'm like, oh, (laughs) mission accomplished. (laughs) Because it does have an appeal. It hasn't, that that is the power and the energy of that music. lives on and it's it's um it's it, it always resonates through the generations but what i was talking about was the classic rock piece was the radio that was so inherently involved at the time in rock 70s rock um but needing that energy and bringing that kind of new music to the table and that you can have that passion in new music and there are others that create it Bringing new music to people, how is that? Uh, clearly, that's a passion for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How 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 do you how does that manifest itself? Obviously, bringing all these bands to your desk to play. But can you talk about that concept a little bit? So uh, one thing is that as much as music as I do listen to, um, I really have a, a lot of blind spots. Um, I'm not a massive fan of hip hop. I'm not a massive fan of country music. Um, not deeply knowledgeable, though I enjoy classical music, but I don't listen to it much. Mm-hmm. That said, the staff, the people I work with, uh, used to be in the same building, but uh, right now we're all scattered, but they all have their very, very specific passions. And what was important to me was to, once the series sort of started to grow, was to make sure that this wasn't about simply my music taste. Mm. This is about people's passion about music. And so the rule of how I, how and we book Tiny Desk concerts is that anybody can approach me on staff to bring a band and to play the desk. My rule, though, is they have to be passionate about that artist. Mm-hmm. It's not that, hey, this would be really great. People would love this. That's That's not what it's about. But if someone has a passion on staff about it, then I know that it's going to be uh, genuine and that the voice of what is NPR music is going to be reflected out to the world. So we're not just covering some band because they're going to be big. And so we're not just an echo chamber of what's out there that then repeats and repeats the same stuff that we wind up with. Oh, sure, we'll get popular artists, but we also wind up with like, who? You know, name your right. uh, oddball artist. And and uh, I love that about the series. Um, you know, and I, and I keep that really close as the number one priority so that this series doesn't become uh, some commercial entity property. I mean, NPR doesn't make music on Tiny Desk Concerts. and uh, it doesn't make money mm-hmm. on Tiny Desk Concerts. We, we let the artists... Um, when they put their YouTube up, claim rights to their YouTube video, and they can put the ads there, and mm-hmm. that's how. And they make you know, <laughs> well, I don't. Everybody has different deals, but right. that's. But NPR doesn't claim rights to the music on NPR on 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 these YouTube videos and so forth that are watched millions of times. That's all in the artist's hands. So we do this for our love of of it. That's the main reason we do it. Yeah. Um, how much input do you have? How, how often do you bring a band that you're super passionate about? Um, I mean, it's been weird the last year because we've done the last 16 months, starting March of, of, uh, 2020 that we've doing these home concerts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, 
I I guess I it depends on how we look at it. I'd say I probably at least do three or four a month, so one a week, we'll say. Uh, but mm-hmm. I also will sometimes just book an artist that I know person B on our team really likes that, but they're everybody's so overwhelmed trying to figure out how to work from home and do their job from home and ha- and manage their child and so forth. They're probably not going to pitch me, but I know that I can bring them and then say, hey, you know, uh, Lindsay, the whole steadier in New York City, we can get them uh, to do a video and, and uh, would you write the copy then for it? Uh, if I help make that happen, and so right. things things like that happen, so I'll do a lot of bring in a lot of concerts that are I know other people on the team are passionate about. Yeah, yeah. And when do you think uh, you'll be able to have bands back in the studio? Studio, no. My office desk, yes. Your office, <laughs> right. right? Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah, as, yeah. It's, it is literally an office. You're off, yeah, back at your desk. Sorry. And, you know, people actually who work in the office, which are all NPR music people, but they sometimes have to go scurry to another room to hit deadlines and so forth because there's some damn band is playing in the office. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> right. Damn. Phoebe Bridgers is coming in again and Lizzo is yeah, coming yeah, in again. Right. And no, God no, damn it. Why I, the, I, gotta I gotta get some work writing. done here. This right. <laughs> and it, hap- it actually really does happen. Wow. Um, so uh, NPR hasn't figured out yet uh, when we are all coming back in our building. The main mm-hmm. goal is that uh, we uh, are play it safe, especially for the news division. So they'll roll in first whenever that is, and sometime probably July, but we, you know, we're waiting to hear. And right. then uh, us music people who bring in strangers from outside the building from who knows where to perform loudly at a or <laughs> with a bunch of people screaming and yelling close together in a room well that's probably going to be the last thing that happens in our building right um, i'm i'm assuming the fall but i'm waiting to see and I, I miss the heck out of it yeah are you pretty pleased with how this um the at home kind of uh yeah i mean i there are a couple of things that happen one is um, I love it when an artist is literally playing in their bedroom or their living room and you see pictures on the wall and the things that, are, that they possess. Like right now you see in my background. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. If, this is audio only, right? Yeah. No, well, I, yeah. I mean, we can talk about it, but yeah. Yeah. So, the, so this podcast well, like, is audio yeah, yeah. only, right? I so mean, I'll I can see Amanda and a couple right, different right. things. So when, when we're all on our uh, video calls and so forth, we can see – like right now, I see the records behind you, and they're not there for by accident. They're there because they're meaningful to you. Yeah. And I love it when an artist is performing in a room that's special to them, and you see the objects on the wall. That's my favorite part of the home concerts. Mm, yeah, um, for sure. But then there are other artists who different world, and they want to be impressive, and they want to make a big thing of it, which is the opposite for me of what Tiny Desk is all about. But it's a big platform these days, so people think they've got to make big productions. I discourage that. We give guidelines, but people ignore it. And yet still we get stunning, amazing, fun things. So uh, everybody's got different aesthetics. But I do love what has happened. I love the fact that, like I started the, literally started the home concert series uh, with a phone call. I think it was March 13th, our last day in the building in 2020 to um, um, Soccer Mommy who was mm-hmm. to come in and play a concert in two weeks, but that obviously wasn't going to happen. So I said, hey, you're home. You want to just film something at home and we'll put it up? And she was game and we did it. And I just kept reaching out to other artists at first who were already scheduled to come in that I had to call up and say, hey, we can't do one in the office. Do you have the capacity to do one at home? And then then it grew from there. And I, I, so I, did, and I figured then, uh, it was going to last for three, four weeks, but right, right. So did everybody so else. One hundred and f- whatever, fifty concerts later. Um, Do you know. see still doing an an element of that, or will it go back to the desk? So yeah, no, I've been thinking a lot about that, Josh. And I think the main thing is, is that I am not going to bring anyone, or let's put it this way, I'm not going to ha- have a home concert by anyone who has the capacity in the next year or so to tour and come through DC. Mm-hmm. So one of the beautiful things about the home concert series is the amount of international artists we've been able to do yeah. who wouldn't have been able to come has been wonderful. And to represent the world a little more, uh, I'm really thrilled about. So I think that will stay. I think we'll, the home concerts will stay for artists who just are not going to get in the building uh, anytime in the 
foreseeable future. So that's my thinking right now. We'll yeah. see. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's it's brought a lot of positives. I mean, uh, I couldn't do this podcast and speak to so many people around the country and around the world uh, without having these new, um, I mean, FaceTime or Zoom or Skype, it used to be, is it's certainly not nothing new, but uh, the opportunities that's presented itself and the, the acceptability level of it yeah. has for sure increased and increased the possibilities. Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a new world. Um, you talked about bands coming through DC and, um, your, your age old band, tiny desk unit. I was amazed to read that you were the first band that played at the nine thirty club in Washington. Can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about that? And then wait, danger painters was the first band to play at the Anthem. Is that correct? Sort of, yes. So, um, let's start with coincidence. That was just <laughs> that's not coincidence. But so, uh, the 930 Club was, uh, um, in Washington, D.C. In the well, it opened May, uh, May 31st, technically, of 1980. Before uh -huh. that, uh, for about a year, year, and maybe two years, yeah, maybe, maybe two, uh, it was a club called the Atlantis Club. Basically, it was a restaurant in the daytime. And then uh, a group called the Urban Verbs helped uh, turn it into a concert venue. So for about two years, it was this thing called the Atlantis Club. Nobody liked the owner very much, but yet it was a gateway because there really weren't clubs in the <laughs> – look, people don't remember this or don't know this, but clubs in the 70s and, beyond, and before were mostly there to have a band play cover tunes so people could drink. Playing right. original music in a club was not a common thing and often discouraged by the club owners because they just wanted people happy dancing and drinking. Mm -hmm. um, and so the Atlantis Club was formed by this art rock band who were the uh, most influential band in my life beyond the Beatles, honestly, the Urban Verbs. Uh, they were a band I saw every you know time they played in Washington, D.C. They had a player in that band who played an Arp Odyssey, which is an instrument that I wind up buying because of him, and that's how I started playing music. Mm. But... So we were at the 930 Club all the time, and, and, and with, uh, by around the time the 930 Club opened, I lived two blocks from there. The guitar player lived two blocks from there in a desolate neighborhood in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. Very few people, you know, only people we knew basically lived in that neighborhood, <laughs> you know, um, and because uh, everybody went home in the daytime, at nighttime, uh, right. we worked downtown. And so... Um, our rehearsal space was the basement of that club. And so we were asked to play the opening night. So we played uh, May 30th, 1980, which was sort of for friends and family and whatever. Uh, and then uh, played the 31st. It, it was supposed to be with Joy Division. Um, oh, no but uh, Ian uh, Curtis took his life about, uh, I'm going to say it was a month or month and a half before that mm. opening of the club. And so uh, Dodie, then Dodie Bowers was how she was known. Um, and uh, this fellow, John Page, who booked shows around town, uh, got a hold of the Lounge Lizards, who were a band that uh, many of us liked. They were kind of an angular jazz band, jazz with rock elements to them, mm -hmm. and they were a New York City band and got them to come down and play. Arto Lindsay, for those who might know, was a member of that band. Right, right, John right. John Lurie was a member of that band. Yeah, Um and then this your your most recent band that you're involved in, Danger Painters. Yes. So uh, the, a couple of years into the 930 Club, a fellow named Seth Hurwitz bought the club from Doty and began to own and run it. And um, when the 930 Club play, turned ten, we played there, even though we had broken up. When the 930 Club moved its location from 930 F Street to the new location, uh, we were brought on. We re did a reunion to play the very last club show at that mm. old 930 Club. When 930 Club in their new space did their 30th anniversary, um, we pulled Tiny Desk Unit back together to play a show for that. And then um, when uh, the same owner, Seth Hurwitz, opened a new club at, called the Anthem, um, he had us for not coincidental reasons, us at that point was Danger Painters because a few of our members had passed away. Uh, us as Danger Painters 
which is a guitar player from Tiny Desk Unit and myself and a few friends, mm-hmm. uh, were asked to play sort of a friends and family show, the first ones to play through their speaker and sound system at the Anthem. The real first band for the public was the Foo Fighters, who were, of course, staples of the Washington, D.C. scene, right. where Dave Grohl grew up and so forth. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so that's how that happened. So it wasn't entirely coincidental? No, no. <laughs> you kind of you kind of made it, and happen. you know i I've been connected to that club for a long time, and you know all songs considered would broadcast live music from that club for and do live webcasts from that club for a good seven, eight years, I think, yeah, yeah, interesting. Let's talk about bagels for a sec. So you have this. Uh, there's a. I, I was nosing around on the website. You have a. You, you're you're into bagels and teaching people how to make bagels. Wow. <laughs> just uh, you can take new. You can take the boy out of New York, though, huh? You you, you know you just can't because I moved to fifteen. <laughs> I, I moved to fifteen. There was no bagel in Washington D.C. in those years, <laughs> and 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 what they did have uh, were just awful. Just awful, Speaking and uh, and for New many Yorker. years there are two things: bagels and bialis were two things I madly loved in New York and missed from the the uh, moving. Uh, you know, back in in the 60s, 70s, cultures between cities at distances was much different. There was a much deeper difference, so the accents were more exaggerated than you have now. Mm. It was, you know. Right now, everybody sort of talks pretty much like everybody else, and we take that for granted. But, but when I moved to Maryland, like, oh my God, these people talk really funny. Yeah, and and and, and obviously, I did too. Um, yeah, to you them. said in the book you didn't you didn't realize you had an accent until you moved away. Right, never thought twice about it. <laughs> and so, um, anyway. When uh, at some point in my life, I started making bialis every Sunday and did that with my son for a long time. And and uh, and uh, I met somebody uh, one day and said, why don't you make bagels? And and uh, uh, this woman who, uh, girlfriend and dear, dear friend, uh, said, and I said, that's that's too hard. That's crazy. That's really, she said, no, no, you can do that. She was the same person who said I should be taking pictures. That's another uh, okay, story. Yeah. Um, Jessica. Uh, Jessica Mowry, but uh, the the um, so I tried and started to make bagels, and now uh, every single Sunday I, I for I'm going to say for the last six years every Sunday unless I'm out of town I make bagels, and during COVID it's sort of been this lifesaver because every Sunday I would make bagels and then I'd find somebody on our usually on our NPR team and deliver it to their door, and though I'd see them masked I would at least see another human. And so that's been a, a really great thing to be able to do. I mean, how's the quality been? <laughs> They're the best bagels. They're this really side of H and H. They're really, really good. I'm 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 just gonna say I, I won't brag about my music and I won't brag about my <laughs> photography, but my bagels are really good. <laughs> well, I'm glad I brought it up. I looked at the recipe and I'm like, oh, okay, this seems kind of simple and a kind of a maybe a fun thing to do on a rainy Sunday. I don't know if I'm into it uh to do every week, but I might, I might have to give it a shot. Okay. Well, if you're going to do it, give me a holler and I'll tip you, walk you through a couple of tips. Okay. That sounds good. Um, but you talked about this ARP Odyssey and it was interesting because in the creative process, you mentioned how um, you, it was less complicated for you and it, you could create with this particular type of synthesizer or, or instruments without having the technicality of piano or guitar, you could sort of, it, it kind of fit more into how you wanted to create music. Can you talk about that a little bit? It yeah, was really sure. interesting I mean, some, to me. Some people have the ability to, A, look at a sheet of music and play it with their fingers on piano or guitar, or or be able to play a pattern and play that pattern over and over again. My brain didn't like that. And it was mm. never able to do that. I'm much more scattered uh, than that. And so, and I have, I was a deep admirer of so many guitar players. I grew up in an era of guitar players. And I knew in my life, as much as I love guitar, I was never going to be that good. So why would I even do that? I, I mean, I just could, I, there was nothing about me that I knew. I knew myself well enough to know that I am not going to play guitar like, like 
be creative like Jimmy Page. But mm. but <laughs> as you see, I have a guitar sitting on my yeah, on the bed behind me, but that's another story. But um, electronic music in the late 70s and synthesizers in the late 70s, to me, opened up a possibility of worlds that seemed unexplored and seemed it was seemed like a big open door with like millions of possibilities mm. and and the music i loved was always seemed to be filled with adventure and texture and odd sounds that blended with other sounds that made new sounds and and i like that in music and so the arp which is a, was a company it was mogan and 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 arp were the two main companies making Synthesizers, not the only ones, but mm-hmm. um, and I went for an ARP um, and bought one of those, and uh, it really turned out to be true that I I could listen to the singer in Tiny Desk Unit, I could listen to the guitar player in Tiny Desk Unit, I could hear things that are intertwining between the two of them, and I could enhance that with sound by pulling up sliders and not and uh, and switches and stuff like that, and it was amazing. It's like it felt very yeah. organic. Can you talk a little bit about the future of Tiny Desk, where you see it going? I mean, what are your thoughts now? I mean, we've come out of this crazy period where, you know, you've had a uh, transition to uh, Tiny Desk Home. But, I mean, you've been doing this now for uh, 12, 13 years. Um, Is this a permanent fixture? Is this now? Is it a permanent fixture? What do you see as it going? When you sit down and you think about Tiny Desk, kind of what are your ideas for the future? Um, I want to keep it honest to what it is, to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to make sure that it stays uh, stripped down and challenging to musicians, and I think that'll never get old. Uh, yeah. As soon as you start to gussy things up and people say, oh, yeah, I, I used to like Tiny Desk when it was blah, blah, and I don't want that to happen to this series. I want it to be uh, filled with the passions of the people who work at NPR. I want it to be a challenge to the artists that come. And yeah, you know, might we change our technology and the cameras we use? Uh, I've been very fascinated with 360 cameras these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, might we do stuff like that? Yeah, but the, the the essence of it, which is the music, I hope never changes. I You know, and I, I'm sure that I will be gone and the series will continue. And I hope whoever does that doesn't mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm glad to hear that because the stripped down nature is really what is clearly what's the best thing about it. I love seeing bands play there and I love seeing artists play there and you've done so much for, for that and for um, live music in, in, in general, it's, it's kind of a benchmark for those that, 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 that consider themselves performers. Thanks. I, I feel very proud of it. And, 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 deeply fortunate to all the talent that rolls through and uh, all the talent that rolls through and lives up to the challenge uh, of yeah. making something kind of cool and interesting. I mean, look, I, I, I started and make it, but um, it's the artists that do all the work. I mean, and, and they're the ones that should get the, the thank yous. Oh yeah, for sure. I can't thank yeah. every single one of them, but I can thank you for putting it together yeah, yeah. No, and creating no, and that I wasn't, platform. For I was them. just talking out to the bigger picture of for sure people listening out there, just to know that it, this isn't this is about them and less about me. Yeah, and what's been? What are some? You said that they come in nervous, and I can't remember if we said that on the air, but or maybe it was before we started. We, we first started recording. They come in nervous trepidation of playing stripped down and then afterwards it's like oh that was that was phenomenal i had a great time what are some of those reactions that you get that what's one that's kind of surprised you or one that you sort of remember uh I, i'm actually at the moment because i guess i'm getting well, hungry the, <laughs> yeah no no i understand me. bob but, i mean it's kind of the concept of bands coming in and doing something that they didn't exactly um that something where they're kind of a little bit out of their comfort zone. Do you get kind of a sense of relief when that's over? I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the, the thrill of, you can see if you can watch many of these tiny desks as a, as a, just a viewer and see how the nervousness dissipates over the course of a concert. 
Mm, like that's mm-hmm. not hard to do with many, many of these. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that beautiful moment when it's over is, uh, you know, often off camera, but it's like, whoo, we did that. Yeah. You know? Right. <laughs> uh, because all, like I say, all those comfort things are gone and it's, uh, it feels good to do something new. Right. Well, it was great to speak to you and in this stripped down version and (laughs) from my desk to your bedroom, I guess it looks like, or it's actually um, my music studio, but uh, there's a bed. Oh, that looks like a a day bed, I guess. (laughs) This, this was, this was my son's bedroom. Uh, when he uh, lived here, and then uh, when he moved out, turned into mine. Yeah, I'm in the process of like I got to change out my uh, my middle daughter who left for school last year. I need to change out her room, so I'm going to be do I'm going to do the same thing. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much, Bob, for being here. Um, and uh, I feel that sense of relief after an interview, especially with a luminary like yourself. But I, I love your background. I love your honesty and your, um, uh, your passion for what you do. It's an inspiration to me, and I'm sure it's an inspiration to many others. Thank you, Josh. I look, uh, I look forward to meeting you one day and you come and do a tiny desk with me. That'd be awesome. Oh, man. I, Bob, I may have to take you up on that. <laughs> Please do. Please do. Because <laughs> I, I told you my daughter's in D.C., so it looks you like you're stuck, with, you're stuck with me now, It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Thanks so much, brother. <laughs> I appreciate that. Right, Thanks for being here, Bob. You bet. Okay, that was Bob Boylan. Bob has a desk at NPR, and Bob hosts concerts at that desk and as we all know now uh those are the world famous tiny desk concerts uh i thank bob so much for coming up with that idea for putting it into play for following through and as we heard uh for having that second tiny desk concert as he astutely put it we did not set out to have a series, we set out to do one and then figured that worked, uh, we'll do the second one and then so on and so forth. I think something like 500 plus Tiny Desk concerts later since the first one in 2008 and here we are today and I thank Bob for that and I thank Bob for spending the time with me to talk about Tiny Desk and his background. Um, he also started All Things, All Songs Considered, uh, an NPR online music show. And he wrote what has become one of my favorite books called Your Song Changed My Life, um, where ver- various artists from uh, a variety of eras uh, talk about a song that changed their life. And it really resonates with me. And uh, I loved uh, that book, and I can't, I can't recommend it enough. Uh, and I love Tiny Desk. I love seeing bands that I know on Tiny Desk. I love seeing bands that I'm not familiar with. Uh, the stripped down format uh, that, as Bob talked about, forces bands to get out of their comfort zone is just so incredibly attractive and so uh, so compelling to watch as a fan of music, to watch performers perform in a far different setup than they are usually accustomed to. So thanks again to Bob for being here for this first episode of season two of Roadcase. And thanks so much to everyone for joining me for this episode. I look forward to having you uh, on more episodes in the future. Uh, We have tons of great episodes coming up this season. And thanks for showing up for this episode of Roadcase. Thanks again so much for listening. And I'd like to encourage everyone to get involved with Roadcase. You can do so in a number of different ways. You can email me at info at roadcasepod.com with questions, comments, and even suggestions for guests. Or you can follow us on the socials, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We're at Roadcase Pod. And we have a YouTube channel called Roadcase Podcast. 
And if you are able to and like to support Roadcase, we have a Patreon site at patreon.com slash roadcasepod. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite listening platform. And if you could please rate and review the podcast while you're there, that would be great. So I want to thank Waltzer for this awesome theme music that we have. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to Roadcase. We have a lot of great episodes coming up, so I'll see you on down the road. (laughs) 